0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good evening, everyone. And uh, this evening I'm gonna continue this series I'm doing on the four foundations of mindfulness. For those of you who are new today, uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is the uh, fundamental or the, the kind of root teachings that the Buddha gave that uh, gave birth to the mindfulness uh, movement, or at least the Buddhist mindfulness movement that uh, we're part of. And in this uh, famous teaching, the Buddha gives, um, discusses how to cultivate a heightened sense of awareness through uh, attention to four different areas of our life. And um, these four areas are our body, what uh, is usually called feelings, and then uh, our mind states and our our, uh, mind states, and then our mental processes. And the the one of the primary things we're trying to do doesn't work. Go get another one. And um, one of the primary purposes for this is to cultivate a heightened sense of awareness so that we can be freer from the entanglements we get involved in when we are involved in all kinds of experiences, some in the present moment, some in the past and future through our imaginations. Um, if we get entangled with them, then we're not free. There's something about the heightened awareness that can, f- can kind of set us free. And one analogy that's sometimes used for this uh, idea of heightened awareness is that of being awake, the metaphor of being awake. Another one is that of turning on a light in a dark room. That you turn the light on, and suddenly you see everything, it becomes clear. And so the idea of becoming awake having heightened awareness, kind of uh, is a way of turning on the light or shining the light on our experience so we see with greater clarity. And in that greater clarity, we find ourselves somehow not so, um, uh, I like the word entangled with whatever's going on. We kind of disentangle the tangle. So uh, the first exercise is mindfulness of the body, which we've covered over these last few weeks. And uh, <clears throat> the idea is that the body is the most accessible part of these exercises, that uh, you can kind of see your body generally, you can feel it, you can touch it, uh, you can know what you're doing, when you're doing when you uh, physical activities you're doing. So it's relatively easy to be mindful of your body. And uh, so it's kind of like the outer, in sense the outer circle of who we are, most accessible. As we get settled in to being present for our body, then at some point uh, we become aware of some of the deeper activities of our body, what's going on more closely and more intimately, more subjectively with ourselves. And this subjective experience, one of the first subjective experiences that becomes clear uh, is what's called, uh, translated into English as feelings. The ancient Buddhist word is Vedana, which also means to know or to experience, or to feel, not emotionally feel, it's not emotional feelings, but rather to have the, uh, the kind of subjective feelings that arise when we have uh, sensory experiences. So uh, if it's warm, uh, then, you know, outside, I feel hot. And the experience of hot is a physical experience. But if I'm tuned in to my subjective experience, <coughs> I, might ex- I might feel that that sense of heat is pleasant, or I might feel it's unpleasant, depending on a variety of conditions. And that um, ex- experience of whether that's pleasant or unpleasant is considered to be a deeper subjective experience than just feeling the heat by itself. So it's called the feeling tone, or the, the way in which we feel the experience, either pleasant or unpleasant, or likable or not likable. And um, it's, they say in Buddhism that every experience we have has a feeling tone. And uh, it has one of three possible feeling tones. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Some people just call it neutral, but Either pleasant or unpleasant, and um is it unpleasant to have the air conditioner go on <laughs> <laughs> pleasant, yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Neither, <laughs> but <it> requires action <laughs> some people like it <laughs> and um. Well, it seems appropriate for the talk here. <laughs> because we, the idea is to become free regardless of what the feeling is. And, um, and so how do we get entangled with these feelings? So it's one thing to feel warmth. It's another thing to feel um, liking or not liking it. Another thing to feel, oh, this is pleasant or this is unpleasant. And then get involved in this kind of get entangled with the pleasant and unpleasantness to react to it. Um, So in thinking about this today, I was reminded of a field trip that I took on Friday to St. Quentin. Once a year or so, I go to St. Quentin with people I'm training to become Buddhist chaplains. And we went to see a program of um, a year-long program called Guiding Rage into Power, where Jacques Verdun, who comes and teaches here sometimes, has gathered together all the different techniques, approaches he's collected over 19 year 18 years of teaching in San Quentin. Teaching mindfulness, meditation, anger management, a variety of different things, this year long program. And most of the people who come are lifers or in, in San Quentin for having committed murder. So uh, you know, these are people who have you know who are have quite a history behind them, and uh, it happened to be that uh, this time I went that uh, we they had a particular program uh, they were teaching them, which was quite moving and relates to this topic of feelings or feeling tones. And a little a kind of uh, footnote to all this, just a pers- maybe a more personal note. Um, it, the teaching was really great because um, I brought with me my 18-year-old son. Imagine bringing an 18-year-old son, Quentin. We let him out. <laughs> and um, so he was just barely old enough to be have permission to get into the prison to get clearance. And I was so happy for him to sit there in this room of men, kind of transformed men, are men who've been transformed, and, um, and to hear them tell their stories around this teaching. And the teaching was um, the, um, the uh, two kinds of pain, what they called original pain and secondary pain. And for these men in San Quentin, um, every single one of them, so there were 28 men there, in the room, uh, every single one of them had experienced trauma as children. And, uh, and uh, their original pain that uh, was a pain that they experienced as children that set the stage, or set the momentum of their lives until they came to San Quentin. And it, uh, and it caused them to create secondary pain for themselves. And the secondary pain was the way they tried to avoid the original pain because by, by medicating themselves, taking drugs and alcohol, by crime, by being tough, by being violent themselves, were all ways of trying to escape and not feel what was going on for themselves. And uh, what was interesting was that for most of the men there, uh, the, uh, their primary pain um, had to do with their father, one way or the other. An absent father, a father suddenly died, a father suddenly left, a violent father, an alcoholic fa- father. Um, a variety of different kind of relationships with their father was very, very difficult for them. And the kind of uh, the pain of that, then they, you know, they acted out. And, um, and so uh, that was the beginning of the teaching. And this, the third part of the teaching, original pain, secondary pain, the third teaching was um, to learn to sit in the fire, and basically the fire was sitting in the fire of the original pain. No longer avoid it. And to really own up to it, to be with it, to process it. And then once they learned how to sit in the fire, then they had the fir- fourth step. And the fourth step, they, they love, in St. Quentin, they love acronyms. So the acronym is STOP. And STOP stands for Stop to Observe the Process. Isn't that nice? So those three things. So you recognize the original pain, recognize the secondary pain, learn to stay with the original pain by st- sitting in the fire, and then observe the process of what goes on inside of you, the reactions, the responses, and impulse, and everything goes on. And, um, and uh, the, for these men, this teaching, uh, they took to heart because for them, it has such huge consequences for their lives. I mean, it really makes a difference for them. Uh, This was not, you know, um, my son struggling over the fact that uh, his younger brother has the iPad. (laughs) You know, and, you know, breathe deeply and just be with it, right? (laughs) 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 Uh, And these are, these are, some of these people were, you know, the toughest of the toughs before they kind of got transformed in prison. They needed to be in prison, some of them. And um, they, um, but it was quite impressive to be around these men who had taken these teachings in deeply and it really tur- turned a huge you know, corner in their lives and were now transformed. So here were people who had learned to sit with discomfort, to sit with pain, to sit with unpleasant sensations. Unpleasant probably saying too mildly. And they learned to sit with it rather than repress it, rather than push it away, rather than escape from it, and just learned to sit with it. And in doing so, the men there talked about how they became free before leaving prison. And so one of them talked about how uh, he, he was never free outside of prison, but after many years in prison, now he learned to be free, learned to become free. And uh, so you know, and some of the joy in some of their faces was contagious. It was quite something—joy in their faces and their eyes. Some of these men—it was so beautiful to see. The those who felt they, they become free while still in prison. The um, <coughs> um, so this idea of that, that we have pleasant and unpleasant, and now they're pleasant or unpleasant experiences all day long. The Buddha likened it to the shifting winds. Winds can come from southwest, northeast. They can shift suddenly, and so our feelings, you know, constantly they're constantly shifting and changing, it's like kaleidoscope. One moment it's pleasant, one next moment it's unpleasant, the next moment it's neither. All these different things happening. Many of them maybe we're too busy to even notice and recognize they're happening. But there's plenty of them that we recognize. But do we recognize it clearly enough to have this heightened awareness where the light gets turned on and we're not entangled, we're not caught up in the experience. Um, one example that I've, you know, and I've, I've used, and other people have found useful, is to be in challenging situations, and very complex situations, it just seems like it's like so, the social complexity of these kinds of crises or challenging, you know, people arguing, and angry, and being mean to each other or something. It's hard to understand, what am I supposed to do? How do I sort this out? How do I be? It's just so complicated. And then to kind of back off for a moment, and just realize, this experience the totality of this experience I'm in right now is unpleasant <laughs> oh this is unpleasant i know how to be with unpleasant it's just unpleasant and in that kind of separating themselves from it and or turning on the light and then not being pulled into it or pushed around it by keeping their equanimity keeping their balance in the middle of it sometimes it's the pleasant that we get entangled with Sometimes it's because we want the pleasant, we don't want the pleasant to go, we're holding on to it, we're pushing for it, and I think for some of these uh prisoners, they were pushing for the pleasant um because they you know to try to avoid their pain, they want to go where it was pleasant with drugs with alcohol with one man talked about how crime for him was the the rush and the power he got from uh from robbing was um his way of avoiding his pain it's a pretty powerful you know. Takes medicine, I think. You know, if that's your medicine. So uh, to learn to have a healthy relationship with the pleasant, pleasant experience, and the way in Buddhism we we go find that healthy relationship is learn how to sit sit upright or stand upright or be balanced in relationship to pleasant and unpleasant, so that uh, we're not automatically avoiding the unpleasant or automatically going towards the pleasant. But we just stay present. Turn on the light, that's the alternative. Turn the light on in your room, in your head, and really become. look what's happening, be clear of what's happening, become independent in the middle of what's happening by looking around, oh, what's happening now? Oh, this is what's happening. So not leaning forward, not leaning away. They say that the experiences which are neither pleasant or unpleasant, the more neutral ones, are not that common. But when they do, people tend to get dull. It helps people to fall asleep. They're not so interested anymore. And one of the very unfortunate examples of this uh, is socially, that um, if someone criticizes you, uh, that's unpleasant. But it's also very interesting. And most people don't fall asleep. When when they're being criticized. (laughs) When people are praising you, that's also, that's very pleasant. And most people don't fall asleep when, you know, it's so pleasant, people are getting praised. However, if you get neither criticism or praise, maybe not any of you, but uh, there are people when they get neither uh, criticism or praise Um, lose interest. They get bored. Like, nothing's in here for me. I'm not being, my sense of self is not being reinforced. And it's quite uh, sad if you're in the recipient end of that. You know, you're not particularly praising or criticizing or you're not, you're not a particularly pleasant or unpleasant experience for someone. And so they don't, they're not interested. They're not going to focus on you. They kind of lose interest. It's kind of sad that when that operates. So how to uh, stay alert present, attentive, in all three of these kind of places. So in meditation practice, uh, as we settle in to be present, and kind of settle into the present moment, we're starting maybe with the breathing, physical experience of breathing. Sooner or later, as we get more settled, one of the things becomes clear is the subjective experience of things which are pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. start standing out in the highlight Uh, the body begins aching or the body starts feeling very soft and pleasant when meditation is going well Uh, or we have uh, our feelings our emotions our thoughts come through as we're sitting here and we start noticing what it feels like to have these emotions these impulses these kinds of thoughts and we start feeling in a very qualitative different way this is unpleasant to have this it's uh, it's some people really find they they grow up or mature a lot when they finally understand in some deep inner way that being angry is unpleasant, and um, in some way it's you know and to realize oh that's the the cost of being angry are all these unpleasant feelings and tensions in my body this is real this doesn't feel good to be this way. But uh, for some people it takes years before they somehow turn the attention around from what they're angry at to really feel the consequence of being angry subjectively and how unpleasant it is. Same thing about pleasant. Some people are so involved with their thoughts, concerns, the life, their activities, that they don't recognize when things are pleasant that are nurturing or supportive. And so they don't take the time to be fed by that pleasant, to be supported by it, valued by it. So as we settle into meditation, we start becoming more of, more of a heightened awareness to the subjective feeling tone of our experience. And that gives, a, gives us a chance to begin exploring how to have a balanced relationship to it, how to turn on the light and just be with them without being for or against. And it's a fantastic laboratory, it's a fantastic kind of uh, place to um, explore, exercise, develop a capacity to be present for unpleasant without pulling away, with all the all habits, the usual reactivity, pulling away, denying, escaping, getting angry, all these things, and the same thing being present in a balanced way with the pleasant, or with the neither pleasant or unpleasant. So meditation becomes you know, a place to develop Self-understanding, develop the skills to stay balanced with these things. That means in meditation, um, it's not a mistake to feel, have an unpleasant meditation. In fact, unpleasant meditations sometimes are the best. At least from the point of view of a teacher. (laughs) Who's interested in people developing and growing in the practice. You know, for practitioners, they just want all pleasant, I, usually, that's the instinct, right? Mm-hmm. And then if it's not, not pleasant, I must be doing something wrong. But uh, pleasant, unpleasant comes and goes, depending on what's going on in our lives, and sometimes meditation is unpleasant. And, but the opportunity then is to turn on the light for the unpleasant uh, sensations, experiences, and learn how to be awake rather than reactive to it. Sit in the fire. And you learn to do that in meditation, and then at, uh, you might get develop the skills so that you can do it in, the, in regular life when it really matters. When it really matters, so you don't have to go to San Quentin. You can just you know stay stay balanced and present for something that's very very unpleasant when you're sitting in your original fire, um, the original pain. So. Uh, interestingly enough, this teaching on being mindful of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither is one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha. He gave tremendous, I can't emphasize how much he emphasizes over and over and over again as being extremely important doorway into freedom. And it kind of makes things in some ways simple. It's kind of reductionalistic but it's reductionalistic in the way that um, the, narrow, the narrow neck of an hourglass is reductionalistic for the sand. All the sand has to go through that narrow, narrow neck to come out. And so if you want to watch the sand, and you, know, you can see and if the, and it's really uh, thin, you can, you, know, you can watch each grain go by, because maybe one grain at a time, it's so narrow, right? So the feeling, you know, so much of our life goes through the neck of the, what is these feelings, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And it's amazing how much of our life is a reaction to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. In fact, uh, I suspect that some political philosophies, some philosophical philosophies, political stance people have, uh, arise not because of some deep philosophical consideration, but rather someone is feeling unpleasant about something and they want to justify getting rid of it. And so they kind of develop whole scenarios. All the lawyers in the mind come up and policymakers come up in the mind and, you know, establish why I have to push this away or why I'm supposed to get this because of a kind of very simple amoeba-like relationship to pleasant and unpleasant. If you sit quietly and watch yourself, and watch how this works, it's actually quite a, quite humbling for those of us who might think we're very sophisticated beings, and everything we do is very deeply considered, and you know, and wise, and you know, and it turns out that kind of like amoebas, <laughs> as we go this narrow, so much goes through that narrow neck. But the Buddha's teachings on this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Uh, gets more interesting. Once we start understanding how this works and we get quiet and settled enough to see that the underlying all experience, there's some quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And if we can be quiet enough and still enough just to watch that process operating inside of us, then at some point, the Buddha says you can distinguish between two different classes of feeling tones, of these feelings. So two different classes of things which are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And um, he used a very um, uh, kind of um, physical word for this. It, literally, its translation into English is those feeling tones which are of the flesh and those which are not of the flesh. And um, so that's kind of pretty graphic, you know, of the flesh. Of the flesh, I understand to be that those feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, that arise because our physical senses are are stimulated by the usual kind of uh, sense objects. So if I get a massage, my flesh, that's a pleasure of the flesh. If I step on a nail, that's that's um, something unpleasant of the flesh. So something has to be, senses have to be stimulated in the ordinary ways in which they get stimulated. Um, not of the flesh are those feeling tones that kind of emerge or glow or arise out of us, independent of what's happening with the, the, the senses. And the primary example the Buddha used for this was uh, the joy and happiness that can well up in deep meditation. So you're sitting there minding your own business, meditating, following your breath, and you start getting concentrated. And without any intention of your own, without anything changing in the world around you, in fact, sometimes the world around you can be quite unpleasant. (coughs) As the concentration deepens, it seems to uh, trigger a kind of glow or warmth or joy uh, this nice energy that kind of begins flowing through the body. Uh, nowadays, people say oh, it was just serotonin. <laughs> but um, but uh, serotonin is you know that's nice you know it's uh, so it's not it's not not the ordinary senses being stimulated, but some of the chemicals inside of us that are operating that kind of sense things through. And um, this. Uh, this, this kind of pleasant sensation that he calls, it Buddha calls, not of the flesh, in modern English translations, because that's kind of a strange translation, um, they've tried other uh, translations. Um, <coughs> one that some of you who read these kinds of suttas come across, it's Vikabodhi uh, uh, tra- translated as unworldly feelings. And I don't know if that works any better than not of the flesh, unworldly not of the world, but um, the, uh, some people have tried using spiritual as a translation for it because it's often connected to people's spiritual life, how the Buddha talked about it. So what, it, what it happens is as we settle into practice in a deeper, deeper way, more connected in, to ourselves, when we wake up, the light is turned on, there's a kind of uh, very pleasant, enjoyable sensations that begin to well up that are a byproduct of that clarity, of that subtleness, of that sense of balance and harmony that can come. And not only is it pleasant, but it's nourishing. And it's, it kind of nourishes us. It kind of feeds us in a good way. It's kind of like something. Oh, this feels healthy. This feels good. This is um, the Buddha. When the Buddha first experienced this for himself. His reaction to it was, "Oh, I don't have to be afraid of this," because in ancient India there was certain fear that some of the religious people had about anything that was pleasant, because it would trigger some kind of attachment and desire too much. But this is ple- This this is this. I don't have to be afraid of. And so to be able to be to be able to tune in and recognize pleasant inner. Sensations of our inner our in, quality of our inner life, where inner life starts feeling pleasant, is one of the stepping stones to going deeper into this mindfulness practice. Now, um, uh, this uh, feelings not of the flesh. There's also unpleasant ones, and the primary one the Buddha gives as an example is for someone who wants to have a spiritual life wants to go and be able to go deep, more deeply into this. And, but for some reason, their life circumstances uh, prevent them from doing it. And so their strong longing and desire is frustrated. And the, the unpleasantness of that is, um, is called uh, unpleasantness not of the flesh. Unworldly. unworldly. <laughs> and, uh, spirit, no, you know, spiritual unpleasantness. And I think some, some people, maybe some of you have had that experience of somehow feeling frustrated or feeling know, like somehow you can't follow through on, um, on what you really want to do. Right, like this gentleman here, right? How many years were you wanting to follow through but you didn't? How many years? What? Did, you, did you want to follow through on your spiritual longing but you didn't? Oh, many, uh, many, many, many years. Decades, right? Decades. Yeah. Oh, this man here waited a long time. Good things are worth waiting for. Good things are worth waiting for. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so, um, so, so what happens here is that, um, so in this Four Foundations of Mindfulness, um, the first six exercises are about staying connected to your body, using your physical body, your body, as an area to develop a heightened sense of awareness. Then there's a turning point that goes on where at this this juncture of feeling tone, where we start dipping into the inner subjective experience that we have. And at first it's a little bit more of the more obvious feeling tones of that of the flesh, which could be said to be a little bit on the surface, surface pleasure. But as we get more settled, then we start going underneath the surface to the deeper quality of our being, inner life. And that also can be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we become more sensitive, more aware of a higher quality of an inner life. And that, high, and becoming aware of this higher quality, I see it as a, um, as a very important um, uh, piece of information that then makes sense of what we're doing in the second half of these exercises in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So because in the next exercise, we're becoming aware of our mind states and then the inner mental processes that affect our mind states, that affect the quality of our inner life. So we wanna become more and more aware of this inner life because the quality of our mind, the quality of our heart is one of the most precious things we can be the caretaker for. No one else can be the caretaker for the quality of your own heart, the quality of your inner life. And so if you want to start becoming the caretaker for it, responsible for it, and cultivating a high inner quality of, a, high inner, quality of inner life, then these, uh, this practice of mindfulness that goes from the body to feeling tones to mind states is moves in the direction of, be, of being able to be the caretaker for it. As we become more and more a caretaker for our inner quality, quality of heart and mind, we get the information of how to be even, even more uh, caring of it. As we get more caring of it, we, we we prepare the mind. We create the kind of inner life, inner quality of mind that has more and more access to wisdom, more and more access to understanding. What do we do that causes us to lose that quality, and what what do we do that supports having more of it? And that's one of the definitions of wisdom: is to become a caretaker of the quality of your heart for yourself. And the door, one of the door, the doorway into this is to become aware of our feeling tones. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So while on the surface it might seem that the exercise to be mindful of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither is kind of simplistic, reductionistic, kind of maybe not so interesting because it's more important, sophisticated things to be interested in, in life. Um, uh, This is really the hourglass neck in which uh, that opens up, to, for, for at least in, Buddha, in Buddhist terms, into a deep inner spiritual life. How does that sound? We have about five minutes. And uh, if any of you have any questions about this, or comments, or testimonials about sitting in the fire, or anything, please. Uh, thank you for your... Uh for your uh, lesson today one of the things i i, I struggle with is that the neutral aspect of uh, emotion that you talked about and uh, how to how to differentiate between where you are dissociating from something or whether you're neutral or not mm, uh, i yeah. think a lot of times i feel i'm neutral on something and much later i figure out that I was just trying to not address it. Yes, great. That's a great, great topic. So, how do we associate uh, being neither pleasant nor unpleasant with being neutral or being numb? In this regard, I, I learned many years ago that um, <clears throat> that uh, uh, you know, I, I would practice letting go. I'd let go of certain feelings, ideas, whatever that I had, and I would be neutral. I thought, oh, good, <laughs> I did it. But I learned that uh, if I let go and don't feel some modicum of joy, feeling lighter and joyful, it's gonna come back and bite me. Because neutral is not really neutral. (laughs) Um, So disassociation, going numb. I I, I think the best thing I know is to be mindful of it. So we, we spend a lot of time in mindfulness exploring what's going on. So if you explore what you think is neutral, uh, then as you get to know it better and better you start feeling oh this is off this doesn't feel good there's a, i'm closed down i'm resisting i'm you know trying to you know you know spin out in my thoughts i've lost i've lost connection with my body those are all kind of symptoms or signs that uh, we're more dissociated than we are neither present or unpleasant uh, there's a part of the lore of buddhism I I, I don't know how all this works so well, but uh, part of the lore is that um, uh, experiences which are neither pleasant nor unpleasant are quite rare. So you might be careful. If you have a whole bunch of neutral, it's probably not neutral. (laughs) Thank you. And... so the whole not of the flesh thing is a little hard to I mean it feels a little cerebral so is like generosity compassion do those fit into the that which qualifies as um, pleasant but is not of the flesh Uh, not in and of itself but if you practice generosity and the result of that is that there's a nice warmth a glow a sense of well-being it's joy, so that sort of w- the afterglow, as it were. Yeah, yeah. The, okay. sub- the, the subjective way in which you feel about that—that that would be not of the flesh. Okay. That, that's my understanding. Okay, that works. But if they say, "Oh, oh thank you, you're so generous," yeah, that. that and you, that feels really. Go- oh, I feel no. I'm so special. That feels good. Uh-huh. That would be of the flesh. <laughs> in this category. Yes, one more. So, how do you actually get into the fire, and is it recommended that you not do it alone? Not do it alone? Yeah, like, do you do, should you do it in a group? Because I would, mm, I, I would think it would be a very painful experience. Yeah. I think sometimes it's important to have a lot of support. It depends how strong the fire is. Um, sometimes it's a lot of... Not necessarily you do it with a group, but knowing there's other people who understand it, who support you, who are going through the same thing, can be very helpful. Um, you know in this group in San Quentin um, they could do it together really nicely in this group at their program they're in but they have to be careful about uh, doing the same thing out in the yard you know because they they talked about this because if they you know in the group they could cry but out in the yard if they cry they're seen as weak which is not a good thing to be seen as weak at San Quentin and um, so getting support it depends on the kind of fire you have some people and it also depends on you you know how you are some people um find it's a lot easier to do it alone they're willing then some people find it much easier to do it with support of others um some people find it easier to do it in small pieces kind of first you get to the edge of the we're just kind of hot you know and then get comfortable there and then take another little step closer and So kind of, you don't just jump right in the middle right away, sit in the fires, like, you know, maybe, that's like jumping into the deep end of the pool before you know how to swim. So first you put your toe in (laughs) and get used to that, and then, you know, slowly go further. But I think that it's important to understand that there is a fire, there is an original pain, there is something that we carry with us that needs to be addressed. And to recognize that, even if we can't address it or ready to sit in it, it's a, tr- it's a huge step to even, to, to, to rec- oh, to recognize it. Oh, this is my issue, this is my pain. And um, because if, even if you just recognize it, then you start making maybe a wiser choices as opposed to impulsive choices or escapist choices or whatever. Um, so, um, do you wanna ask more so I can, ask, I can respond better? Uh, uh. i think because i feel like i know so i'm there i recognize what my fire is but i know i i feel like i'm not getting into it because instead i'm seeing i keep seeing all the issues that come up because of my fire Mm -hmm. and i'm really mindful of that now so i guess that's (laughs) Plus, <laughs> but it's very painful to be mindful of the issues and know your fire, but not seem to be able to get to the fire. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things occurred to me. I don't know if it's relevant for you. Sometimes it's necessary to clean up some of the some of the secondary pain. It takes a while before we can get to the original pain, and so some to clean, you know to clean up and take care of things and kind of. Um, um, Kind of even maybe even remove ourselves situations where the secondary reactions are predominating it might take a while but things settle down so that we're ready for the the you know the original pain thing that's one thing. The other thing that some people uh, find very useful uh, is to uh, go on a retreat and uh, you know go on a seven day ten day retreat and, and then you't necess- you're not necessarily going to sit in the fire there, but you might. And uh, that's a great place to have things come up. Because it'll come up if it's, really needs to, if it's time for it to come up. And then you're not distracted by all the other things. And, uh, and you don't have to kind of negotiate all the other things. And there's a, there's a silence uh, context of people sitting together in retreat. Many people find it's a really safe place to open up and let this stuff be there. So that's a possibility, too. And, and uh, you know, I know you have a young child So that makes it a little difficult to go. But, you know, maybe talk to me about it. Maybe there's some way to, uh, some ideas I have for that. Okay, so pleasant, unpleasant, and neither. That happens from time to time. When it does, turn on the light and see what happens. Thank you.